This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. It's great to have all of you joining us. And for those who listened last week, you know that Ryan McMakin and I had a great conversation about Garrett Garrett's wonderful essay from the 1930s, The Revolution Was. And that was really uh, Garrett's attempt to frame the New Deal and the FDR era in terms of a quiet revolution. And of course, a lot of the lessons learned from that essay are still apply in spades today. But I mentioned during that show uh, that we might take a few weeks, sometimes we like to do this and get away from the pure econ stuff and get away from the more uh, dense theoretical or analytical economics and uh, get into uh, talk about some of the great writers from the old right tradition. And there's nobody better in that tradition, which is certainly the tradition of Murray Rothbard and certainly animates the Mises Institute. There's nobody better from that tradition, of course, than the great H.L. Mencken. And when I thought about doing a show on Mencken, uh, my friend Jim Bovard's name immediately came to mind because I know he's a big Mencken fan, uh, well-read, well-versed, also lives in the D.C. area. He's probably been up to Baltimore to see Mencken's house on Holland Street. And I know he's been involved, uh, at least peripherally, with uh, some of the H.L. Mencken fan clubs and that sort of thing. So, Jim Bovard, uh, great to talk to you today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Always happy to uh, tap, uh, tip my hat to Mencken. And, and in honor of Mencken, uh, Mencken style, you know, for doing this interview, I'm sitting here chewing on a cheap cigar. <laughs> well, at least you're not day drinking. Um, <laughs> well, hey, it's a standard. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, I wanted to spend a few weeks going through perhaps Nock, perhaps Flynn, uh, some of the other big voices from the old right and uh, Taft. And so when I thought about doing a show on Mencken, I realized there's just too much. He wrote so, so much that it, it would be difficult to do anything maybe than a survey to try to get our listeners interested in checking him out for themselves. And I want to start with this, Jim. He may have written about as many words as anybody in the 20th century. I know Hazlitt's way up there in just in terms of sheer word count. Um uh, you know, it's pretty remarkable to look back on some of these guys and think of the depth and breadth of their writing. Well, and, and the thing that's surprising about Mencken was not so much the number of words, but so many of the words are still worth reading. Uh, he was someone who took great joy in the English language, and uh, he was someone who relished trying to get the perfect word, the perfect sentence, and the the uh, perfect crack of whip, a uh, 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 crack of wit. Uh, and he was. And because of that, you can go back and read his stuff and just, uh, you know, it puts a big smile on your face. He was also smart enough to uh, do a, 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 a selection of his best writing uh, from across the board called Crestomathy, which came out, I believe, in 1947 or 48. It was a bestseller back then. And it's, it's a wonderful selection that shows that he was... Uh, insightful and witty on so many different areas. He was a great champion of freedom and he was a great enemy of uh, demagogues, but he also had uh, appreciation of a lot of other areas of life. That was a book which I stumbled on in my mid-20s. Um, it's interesting. I, and I'd seen articles uh, on uh, Macon and Reason and elsewhere when I was a late teenager, maybe 2021. And what they sent me to was some of his uh, presidential campaign writing. And I wasn't that charmed by it because it seemed a little bit bombastic. 
he would use the same words over and over. He was, you know, there were a lot of German language stuff that, you know, uh, a small amount of that goes a long ways. But then later on, I, I happened to uh, start reading his five volumes of prejudices that came out in the early early mid twenties, and it then went on to Crest and Matthew, and realized that he was just. Um, yes, a wonderful stylist, and he was also very thoughtful. And there were certain political principles which he upheld, which um, any uh, any American who appreciates freedom or the Constitution should relish. And in the, the Christomathy is where we get his famous uh, line where he says, well, I believe in liberty, but I don't believe in it enough to want to force it upon anyone. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest, Jim, to our readers, a 19 essay, 1980 essay by Murray Rothbard, which was actually originally in the New Individualist Review. It's called H.L. Macon, the Joyous Libertarian. So we'll provide a link to that. And that's probably as good a place to start as any. I mean, this is a guy who uh, Rothbard described as an arch isolationist whom Rothbard described as a libertarian. Obviously, he was very jaundiced in his view of the common man. Uh, he was an anti-egalitarian, to put it mildly. I mean, there's a lot here, and you can see sort of the bones, some of the framework of Rothbard's own thinking when you go back and read Mencken. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of folks don't don't realize that um, don't recognize the difference between writers who love, love to write and love the English language and those who are like, oh, God, i got to do another 1,500-word essay. And they just drag themselves across the keyboard. And, and then they drag their readers in the, uh, you know, um, um, you know, just drag their readers over nails and broken glass and stuff like that. And you finally got through it. But there is a joy in reading Mencken at his best. I mean, there were certain stylistic flourishes he had that I think were not as good as others. But... Mencken at his best, at his most charming, it's it's captivating. And he was a hero on the uh, on the war issue in the First World War. He was one of the most outspoken opponents of going to war until he got silenced. Uh, and he was, you know, he was on the Justice Department radar screen, uh, if not in the Justice Department crosshairs, because uh, there was a lot of, you know, folks think about. The last 10 or 20 years as being a really rough time for journalism or freedom of speech, it was a hell of a lot worse during the First World War. And part of what is spooky is to see the um, see several presidencies after 9-11 using that World War I laws in order to target journalists or activists or others. Yeah, and of course, uh, he was opposed to, at least slightly opposed to our involvement in World War II as well. He was a so like Garrett Garrett, whom we discussed last week. He was a huge critic of FDR. He was upset when we went off the gold standard, um, and it was really a pretty remarkable time for him. But I, you know what I wanted to mention specifically, Jim, because it just cracked me up reviewing this last night was his intense and blinding hatred for William Jennings Bryan, who he considered an absolute uh, boob, a know-nothing, and he got his vengeance in a 1925 obituary of Bryan. I, I imagine we're going to see some weak tea attempts at the same thing, like when Trump dies. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a good wager. Yeah, I, I mean, it was personal for Mencken, partly because Bryan was one of the, uh, I guess, fathers of prohibition. And that's something which hit Mencken both on a personal level and a philosophical level. Uh, I think he saw prohibition as the epitome of tyranny back in the 1920s. And there, there are, so, you know, here again, this is one of those topics that most Americans nowadays, 
say, oh, yeah, well, you know, the government had uh, prohibited alcohol for a while and no big deal. But it was a whole lot worse than that because you had federal agents going out there and poisoning um, uh, uh, grain alcohol or, or, or other types of industrial alcohol and intentionally leading to thousands of people being killed by uh, killed after they drank the illegal alcohol. Um, and there was a there was a great line Mencken had about how the uh, about how the anti anti saloon league had gotten the power to basically dictate who became a federal judge. They had this veto power, and it was profoundly corrupting the Constitution. There were some great lines, uh, some Supreme Court decisions in the mid late 1920s, upholding the Fourth Amendment, saying that the government was not allowed to search all the cars for alcohol. Well, it's too bad that we lost that principle because, you know, come the drug war, 1980s, 1990s, uh, you know, the uh, Fourth Amendment was practically flushed down the toilet. So so for listeners who want to find a place to start with Macon, let's talk about that. First of all, there's three biographies, three major biographies. There's some minor ones, too. There's one by Mary and Elizabeth Rogers. There's one by Terry Teachout, who's someone you know, longtime writer at The Wall Street Journal. And there is also actually a third one by a Dr. Fred Hobson. So, wow, it's pretty impressive to have three biographies, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, and all three are good. Hobson is my favorite, very well written. It, it broke a lot of ground. He was someone who did not share uh, many of Mencken's political beliefs, but I think that, there, that he did appreciate the um, sense of tolerance, support for freedom of the press, and, uh, the, uh, and support for dissent. Hobson had a lot of interesting uh, details there. There was a caricature of Mencken that came out, started from, um, it got spurred by when his diaries were released, I guess, was it 25 years after his death? Maybe 35 years. Uh, diaries came out in 1989. He died in 56. Uh, so, and uh, it was a point that Hobson made was, uh, okay, um, um, during the 1930s, um, H.L. Mencken was not outspoken opponent of Hitler. He made some uh, strong criticism of him, but he didn't say on the issue. But after Kristallnacht, after the uh, th- uh, there was a wave of violent attacks on synagogues in Germany in November 1938, some people were killed as well. H.L. Um, Mencken did a column on after that and said that the U.S. That the U.S. should welcome all the German Jews as refugees. And almost everybody forgets that when they, um, you know, when they pick out phrases that Mencken wrote that make him sound uh, prejudiced. Um, another thing that struck me from Hobbes' book was that Mencken had personally sponsored some of the German Jewish refugees during the um, early 1940s, people who were fleeing Hitler. So this is this is part of his record that almost nobody gets. Yeah, he's sometimes accused of anti-Semitism, and he certainly wrote some sentences about the Jewish race, you know, and, and he's been defended on that, that by people who said, well, this was his bombastic style. And he wrote the same kind of incendiary things about wasps. He had a lot of, a lot of fun attacking all kinds of people. He wrote some uh, things about black folks, you know, and again, it's all part of his legacy, and it's all something you look at now and you say, well... He certainly wouldn't say that or write that today, but does it mean that he was a racist or an anti-Semite at the time? I guess that's that's always the question. But I don't like 
I don't like presentism applied to people from a different era. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. It's interesting. Uh, uh, at the time, some of his diaries came out late '80s, early '90s. Some of the people who came to his defense, Russell Baker was one of them. Uh, Russell Baker, the longtime New York Times columnist, a later a PBS mystery science mystery theater host. Uh, he was a PBS host for something. Did a wonderful book called Growing Up. And he's someone who who grew up in Baltimore, late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and he said, look, this is just how people talk back then. People would use terms which they would not use, which were later considered uh, horrifying, but it was the common parlance. Jonathan Yardley also came to his defense on that. Uh, so, and, you know, as far as Mencken and uh, African-American black writers, he was someone who welcomed uh, helped champion a number of the uh, black writers in the early 1900s. And he was also someone who would have them as guests in his own home uh, there in Baltimore, which was almost unheard of uh, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting that how he was able, like Garrett Garrett, whom we discussed last week, he was able to straddle the literary world, the newspaper world, the political world, the social commentary world. I mean, he was a very nimble thinker and writer. And that shows among in among many different ways uh, that he created the American Mercury, which was a literary journal. And later in life, he actually uh, sponsored and recommended Henry Hazlitt to be uh, the editor of the American Mercury. So there are some ties there between Mencken and Hazlitt, which I think are important to to understand. Yeah, I, I, I was I was uh, I thought you might have some insights on that. I guess that the uh, Hazlitt working there didn't work out so well, or he was only there. Yeah, briefly, it was very or? it was short lived, and you can imagine if you've read a lot of Hazlitt, he's he doesn't have a, a literary flair so much. <laughs> okay. Uh, but he was a hell of a good writer later on. Maybe he learned, you know, perhaps his time at uh, Mencken's magazine helped him sharpen his writing. I don't know. Yeah, I think of Hazlitt's writing as excellent. I, I just don't think of it as flowery. Flowery. Well, I mean, uh, some of Mencken's writing is, is flowery, but something which I, which I appreciate is that he could wield a scalpel and do it and... Uh, and do it gracefully with a smile and to make people laugh as opposed to simply stirring up political hatred. I mean, that's that's one of the changes in, in uh, prose in recent decades is, you know, there, there's so much more vitriol that people don't even try to have that humor. It was interesting. Someone was, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a recent anniversary of William F. Buckley's passing or his birth or what, but some conservatives were talking online about, about how wonderful his writing style was. But if you contrast Mencken at his best with Buckley at his best, there's, uh, uh, there is no comparison because uh, Mencken at his best did not have that affectation. He was, he was grounded in ideas. It's interesting. One of the criticisms that uh, Terry Teachout had of uh, Mencken was he was an autodidact. He was someone who, who did not go to college and did not get the proper training. And I'm thinking, thank God, because uh, I would not want, uh, uh, you know, Mencken to be running like a college professor in 1903. Uh, 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 Mencken was able to develop his own style and his own uh, values, basically. But he had a passion for reading that a lot of people don't appreciate these days. And he spent a lot of time reading novels, which he did a lot of reviews of for Smart Set and elsewhere. And I think that's part of the reason why his writing style was 
far superior to the vast majority of, of journalists at his time, and even more so the journalists of our time. Yeah, it, the American Mercury is a remarkable periodical, and you can actually go back and find old copies of that, both on our site and on the site at Fee. Uh, if you're interested in checking it out. Now, you mentioned that he had supported some writers, some black writers and others. He did a lot of favors in his life. And not only did he bring uh, Henry Hazard to the fore and called him one of the best, you know, an economist who could write, essentially. He also praised Ayn Rand's early work, her We the Living. In his memoir, he talks about writing to her and uh, recommending that book to uh, certain publishers. And she wrote him back and said, thank you, we, you know, really appreciate it. So as you mentioned, he died in 56, so he didn't really get into the all the, you know, the objectivist milieu and everything that happened with Atlas Shrugged later. But early on, anyway, he was helpful to a very young Ayn Rand. Yeah, he was. He passed away in 56. He had a, a major stroke in late 48, 1948 which left him semi-incapacitated. Semi he wasn't his old self, but um, but he lived for another, I guess, seven, eight years and uh, probably the least happy time of his life. But uh, yeah, so, but I was, I was not aware he had helped uh, Rand. That's, that's great. Well, one thing that, which I think really connects uh, Mencken to Rothbard is a deep-seated strain of anti-egalitarianism. And it it comes through in almost everything that Macon writes. Sometimes for me anyway, even as a fan of Macon, it comes through in an uncomfortable way. I don't like it. Uh, he talks a lot about the bourgeoisie, which was his term for the common man. He talks about babbitry. Now, Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis is one of my favorite all-time novels. If you haven't read it, George Babbitt represents sort of the sturdy archetype Midwestern businessman, a glad hander. He goes out and promotes his town. And this this kind of person, uh, the fictional Babbitt, was definitely the target of Mencken's ire. So in that sense, he wasn't he doesn't presage populism so much. I mean, he was an elitist, but yet somehow uh, he's got a hard boiled, hard drinking, hard cigar chopping tendency to him. So it's a little bit of, of a contradiction. Yeah, it's it's a good point you make. There are things that he says about the uh, human race that are kind of uh, overly disdainful. And um, I think he may have been blind to the type of happiness that some a lot of people preferred. He was a little bit like Thoreau that way. Uh, but unlike Thoreau, he didn't help start the Civil War. So, um, <laughs> But there was, there was a comment, there were comments um, he was he was sensitive about uh, being uh, being attacked as uh, contemptuous of the human race, and he was you know uh, I forgot which biographer it had, but there was a back and forth there at the Baltimore Sun offices, and and he was saying you know look, it's my concern to have freedom, you know that it's important to have the system of freedom because that way people can. People can flourish if they have the ability and the willpower and all that. And if you don't have freedom, then you're you're not going to have anything pretty soon. And so uh, his faith in freedom was a, a, a faith in a faith in the potential of individuals to flourish uh, and do it in a way that wasn't you know government commanded, government controlled. Uh, and in that sense, he had faith in the human race. I mean, he was kind of disdainful. I mean, look, you know, if you live in Baltimore, it's hard not to be jaded. Especially in the Christomathy, which we mentioned earlier, he talks about the inner nature of government, which I really like. And here he says the government basically exists to prop up the man who is superior only in law. 
against the man who is superior in fact. So he wasn't elitist in that sense. He didn't believe in station of birth. He was an anti-aristocrat. He didn't believe in uh, having royalty in Europe, for example. So, you know, like a lot of people, he has his own uh, inner contradictions. But uh, what I think is important to understand about Mencken is just the the volume again, the, the the ability to write across genres for many many decades and to write as voluminously as he did is really something. And and maybe nothing, Jim, represents that better than his multi-volume work, The American Language, which is all about the English language in America, in the United States, and all the permutations of. I mean, that alone, <laughs> the American language alone, and its supplementary volumes, that would be a a Envious career for almost any academic to produce that. Uh, I agree. It, it's a, it has a lot of wonderful stuff in it. I mean, uh, there are a lot of things which I learned from it. Uh, I was, you know, I had no idea that that the uh, Americans a uh, hundred years ago had so many slurs for Dutch people. So, uh, but I mean, there's just there was there was uh, making appreciate the color and the vitality of the American language, and he's someone who helped. Uh, you know, codify is probably the wrong word for it with the American language, but he's someone who helped uh, put that, uh, uh, help make that respectable because they're, uh, you know, uh, making probably spent much of his life warring against uh, college English professors who were trying to put a straight jacket on things. They were the kind of, uh, one thing Mencken often scoffed at the college professors for was for not recognizing the genius of Mark Twain. Far sooner. I mean, you had the college college English professors who were talking about William Dean Howes as the uh, most wonderful writer, and they were ignoring Huckleberry Finn. Um, and you know, there, there's there's a um, tone deafness doesn't come close to capturing the uh, the evil here. Uh, uh, evil is the wrong word, but the boneheadedness of a lot of these professors. And it's the same thing happening today. I mean. Uh, if you know, if folks want to learn how to write, college English professors are probably one of the last places that you want to go. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's sad. But I also think this dexterity with language is really something that's being lost because we talk about canceling people, we talk about deplatforming, we talk about political correctness. Macon would have been deeply opposed to all this. He you know, there's a lot of quotes from him where he says his liberty or his sense of individual liberty is not really ideological. He he, but he desperately opposed any attempt to control what a human being says or thinks or writes. And so, uh, you know, I think that's important. Yeah, and, and for H. L. Mencken, uh, uh, that is perhaps his only theological issue. I mean, that that faith and freedom. Uh, maybe it's not a theological issue, but uh, it's something which he would fight for. It's something which he got. Hammered for in 1926 was it the hat rack story, uh, where he was prosecuted in Boston for that, uh, for, for publishing a story that was considered obscene uh, by the standards of the time, but would be really dull nowadays. Um, but he but he was willing to uh, to risk his freedom on that by taking a stand after he published it, and he was amazed that there were so few uh, other writers or publications that backed him up on that. He was expecting that, you know, that, that he would stand there basically in front of the flanks. Instead, he was kind of not quite standing there by himself, but uh, I think the ACLU backed him up. But the ACLU nowadays, 
you really can't count on them and being the right side of the barricades. Yes, and he was also hostile to religious babbitry, uh, people who didn't believe in evolution. He's actually memorialized, if you want to check it out, in a movie called Inherit the Wind, which is about the Scopes monkey trial in, I believe, Dayton, Tennessee. And there's a journalist character, not named Mencken, but there's a journalist character in that movie, which is based on him, a trial he covered. Um, And he spent a lot of time in Hollywood as well. He talked about uh, how sordid the film industry was. Uh, This is a guy who really lived life and went out there. Uh, Jim, a lot of people might not know his Baltimore So maybe we can talk about that. He's got his memoirs. He talks about the Baltimore of the 1880s and his childhood. What a a place and what a time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how H.L. Mencken sculpted the career, which is something that he did, you know, from the early 1900s onwards. He made a lot of good tactical and strategic decisions. Um, During World War II, um, he was self-banned mostly, but... uh, he, you know, he basically basically recognized that his ideas were not going to be welcome almost anywhere. So what he did was write memoir stories. Uh, did a long, did a series of them for for the uh, for the New Yorker magazine, and those later were published in books. Uh, I think Happy Days, Newspaper Days. Uh, I, uh, there was one other volume I forget to talk about. Those those are Mencken at his most charming. Uh, the, there was a wonderful story about the girl from Red Lion. Pennsylvania, uh, about, about, well, and I won't spoil the story, but it's, it's a good short read and it's, it, it, you know, it's got making that as most charming. Uh, I don't think it's making it as most accurate. Uh, I think he basically decided to put a smiley face on parts of his life, but he is someone who had a lot of joy and, uh, you know, but it certainly wasn't, I don't know that that was his default disposition. Uh, but Baltimore back then, uh, Baltimore was a major city back then. It was a city that got a lot of respect. The uh, Baltimore Sun was one of the most respected papers in the U.S. Um, there were newspaper wars uh, that were real, you know, a, a competition between two good, two or more good newspapers. Um, and it, it's hard to imagine that considering what Baltimore has become with plunging population, Soaring homicide, schools have collapsed. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's it's sad because it had so much potential and it's basically lost. Yeah, if you go back and read his Baltimore of the eighteen eighties, I mean, just such a fascinating portrayal. First of all, of course, it's, there's horses everywhere. There's horse drawn carriages everywhere, and so there's the uh, what horses produce everywhere, and there's flies everywhere. And he describes how. The Chesapeake Bay was what he calls an immense protein factory. And poor people, Jim, could actually go down uh, to the bay and pull out crab or whatever for dinner, for free. I mean, this is this is a pretty wild place. And, uh, it, it, you know, I think the hardship of that is what turned him into such a, a clear-eyed writer, is the fact that things were just a lot harder then. We, it's a, almost a world we can't imagine in America today. And I think that's probably, if nothing else, what produced his work ethic. And the, it's certainly a work ethic that produced this much writing. Yeah, well, uh, something Mencken saw as, as a street reporter and later on as an editor of newspapers was the fraud of so many of the, uh, of the reformers, so many of the do-gooders. And he just had intense uh, contempt for them because he saw them interfering in people's lives and making, people's, uh, making people less happy and sometimes less healthy. 
but it was a whole sense, you know, he was mortified by this notion that uh, that there were some people who had a right to command how other people must live. Um, it, it's interesting, uh, Macon made a lot of comments. Uh, I think he felt Baltimore was ruined in part uh, by the surge of immigrants from the South uh, during the First World War and again during the Second World War because there were all the shipyards. There was a, a, a massive war industry from there, shipbuilding and other things. Uh, so, um, you know, he was, but it's interesting in contrast to a lot of uh, contemporary writers, uh, Mencken did not, you know, have a blanket condemnation of the South, and he was able he was able to uh, to recognize how the state of Virginia, at least prior to 1865, stood for some uh, higher values. I mean, you had some of the best presidents came from Virginia. Uh, after 1865, it didn't do so well. Well, you mentioned he hated a reformer. Uh, and Murray Rothbard hated reform, like John Dewey, for example. And if you go back and if you read, if you read Rothbard's two-volume history of economic thought, if you read his progressive era, like Mencken, he shared a real distrust of the puritanical Yankee. He often comes down on the side of the Catholics, you know, uh, harder drinking uh, against prohibition. So there's definitely some Mencken in Rothbard. There's no question about it. Here's the thing, though, Jim, this this will surprise some people. And Marion Elizabeth Rogers, in her biography called Mencken, the American Iconoclast, she really gets into this. Despite his pugnacious, cigar-chomping uh, wit, despite, you know, he wasn't the greatest physical specimen, he was actually considered a very eligible bachelor in his day. He He did not marry until he was 50. In 1930, he married a woman named Sarah Hart, and Mary and Elizabeth Rogers came across boxes and boxes of romantic letters he wrote to her at 50, or presumably, I don't know, late 40s when he's courting her or whatever. So this, this is the kind of thing that just, it, it's, so, it's so unlike today. It's almost unthinkable that you, you would, uh, that someone, let's say my age, would have boxes of love letters from a from a you know an old relationship or something. It's just it's it's th- these are people who lived and breathed and worked in the English language in in a perceptibly different way than we do today. Yeah, well, uh, I think I think that the uh, um, I'm sure someone's done a good uh, study of comparing how how love letters changed after email, and then it's even worse after texting. So uh, it's sort of like you got. Uh, or, you know, it's basically a Twitter standard. You've got 140 characters to tell someone how much you love them. Uh, so I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's an unusual, um, the, uh, Sarah Hart, I guess she was a, um, uh, a, a teacher at, uh, Goucher, I think, uh, Goucher college, which is, yes, uh, which is, which is where Mary and Elizabeth Rogers was, uh, studying when she became a Mencken biographer. Oh, I didn't know that uh, Marion Rogers had studied there, but uh, there were uh, uh, there were funny stories that Mencken would tell. Um, uh, uh, if memory serves, he was invited to go out to Goucher once or twice a year, and he would comment in, uh, to his friends or his letters, well, I'm going to talk to all the virgins today. So uh, a, a very different vibe than what he would have gotten in Hollywood. So... Uh, hard to find virgins in Hollywood, even the 1920s. Yes, I don't think someone would go to give a campus lecture today and say, I'm going to go talk to all the virgins on, you know, whatever school. But uh, 
I want to recommend to people that they check out Macon. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are you know, faintly familiar with him, maybe have read a little bit, maybe have thought about it, but he's someone I'm, I'm glad that I spent a couple years really delving into a long time ago. I, I th- certainly think we can all benefit. I certainly think you can learn a lot about today's political tradition from understanding his view of uh, particularly World War One and World War Two. And as Jim mentioned, I mean, we talk about cancellation or, you know, feeling like you can't criticize something today, you're going to lose your job. Try being an isolationist when Woodrow Wilson was literally ginning up a propaganda department with Edward Bernays to sell the American public on World War I. Uh, you know, they, we, we've certainly um, lived through eras in the U.S. where speech was more restricted and opposition to war and other things was more restricted. So we had to take some heart from that. Um, I'm going to recommend also that you follow Jim Bovard. You can find him at his website, jimbovard.com, which is a collection of all of his different works. Obviously, he still writes for USA Today. He was a longtime writer at Wall Street Journal. He is on Twitter at Jim Bovard, all one word. And we're going to go ahead and link to, among other things, the Rothbard article I mentioned called H.L. Mencken, the Joyous Libertarian, written in 1980, because I think that's a great starting point uh, for people who are interested. We have all of Macon here in our library here at the Mises Institute. So that's a, if you ever visit us, you can read Macon for hours and hours and hours. So all that said, Jib, I want to thank you uh, for your time this morning. I want to encourage people to read Macon, and I hope everybody has a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.